0: This is The Big Shut-In, Stories from Quarantine. So it's Sunday, March 22nd. And in a lot of ways, I'm just now having any kind of bandwidth to start paying attention to what's going on outside of my house. You know, we're settling into a routine kind of. And I'm starting to be more aware of more reports about what's happening in other parts of the city, other parts of the country. You know, I I live in this really pretty bougie little neighborhood in Western Queens. There's a lot of single family, two family houses with little yards, a lot of them around these sort of shared courtyards. There's a lot of trees and there's a lot of kind of upper middle class white people with um, what I think of as, you know, pink collar jobs, kind of creative fields, and, you know, graphic designers and writers, uh, college professors, business consultants, you know, a podcast producer and um, everyone around me, all the people I would normally be interacting with on a day to day basis are absolutely on lockdown right now. When I've had to leave the house, it's a ghost town. You see a person on the sidewalk where, you know, on a nor- on a nice day, you'd normally see dozens. But there's reports coming out now that other parts, even of the city, are, are not quite so locked down, even though every everyone must be aware at this point that this is absolutely the recommendation that this is what we need to be doing. I I saw news stories going around Facebook and stuff about people sitting out in parks, you know. The sun was out. They wanted to get some fresh air and crowding into these city parks and people standing in line for carryout in ways that, you know, they're, they're packed into a queue. And in a lot of ways, it makes sense, you know. I live in a row house, but it's a house nonetheless. And so... Nobody but my wife and kids and I are going to be coming in and out of that front door. But, you know, if you live in an apartment building with a hundred units in it and each apartment has at least two people living in it, even if everybody in the building only leaves the house once a day for five minutes, that's 600 people going in and out of that door. And so it's not so easy to maintain a social distance in a place like New York City. And there are a lot of reasons here and elsewhere why someone might reject that recommendation. I might just say, you know what? I have to live my life. It might be selfishness, it might be necessity, it might just be pure stir crazy desperation. Anyway, that's a lot of what I ended up talking to my friend Naomi about. She is a college professor. Uh, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, with a husband who's a stay-at-home dad and two kids who are older than mine.
1: Things are settling in um, now that it's been about a week for us.
0: How are things there now? Are people kind of down with the program? Are people hunkering in and quarantining themselves, or are they saying it's nonsense and hitting the streets? Um,
1: I I don't know. I mean, all my understanding of what's going on out there is very anecdotal because I myself have been pretty secluded for the past week. And so I see stuff online. I hear kind of the the talk um, coming through my Facebook feed or my Instagram. There's a lot of anger on the part of people who are clearly in economically precarious positions and they have every right to be angry uh, when they don't have real economic relief in sight and they're being asked to stay home and they live month to month on an hourly wage. Um, so I think that, you know, there are the people, there are the people that are just dismissing the, the socially responsible advice. And then there are people that have a sort of simmering anger about the quarantine but I think that they, they have a really important point to make, which is they can't stay home if they can't eat. I'm hearing that kind of response from people like small business owners or, or wage workers in the service sector um, who feel like their livelihood is, is under threat. And it's, and, and it's becoming increasingly urgent. You know, the first of the month is coming up pretty quickly. And at some point, people are just going to run out of money to buy food. You know. <laughs> um, and then I don't know where we're at. So, so I feel like I feel like there's a lot of conflating, um the people who are just out on spring break, and and um, dismissing kind of good medical advice, and and then another group of people who are resentful of the quarantine and questioning its necessity in part because they have their own necessity that runs counter to it.
0: I, I mean, I've been amazed. Um... Economics has never been my strong suit to begin with, but I, I, I've been sort of amazed at at how quickly things are being mm-hmm. forced to close, and how quickly people are being laid off, um, even from sort of big institutions that I would have thought yeah, could fine. could kind of hang on for. You know, I thought you know we a month, two months in, people would be losing their jobs, but I, I didn't realize it would be days in. You know, day three. You know, a big, yeah. you know, a, a cultural institution or a big company is laying people off. You know, that, I, I don't know. I mean, it seems like everything, everything in the entire economy is month to month to some degree or another.
1: Yeah, yeah I mean, some it, of it, some of it driven by greed and some by necessity. But yeah, <laughs> you know, um, I, I think that's that's capitalism, right? I mean, capitalism is dynamic. So very rapid adjustments are possible, but rapid adjustments that don't necessarily serve the common good or democracy or, or what we would consider the public. You know, <laughs> um, for me the, right now, my anxiety about the global economic fallout of what's taking place actually surpasses my anxiety about the virus itself. So. Um, so yeah, was, I'm very concerned about, um, am I going to hold on to my house you know, <laughs> uh, yeah. with whatever comes next?
0: I mean, I, I was with you oh, oh, a week ago and I, and I completely where I was saying, I'm not worried about health. I'm worried about money, but. Honestly, now where I'm sitting in New York, my fear about the virus has grown exponentially in the last 24 hours. Um, sure. And when I'm seeing the numbers that, you know, we've gone from 800 cases to 8,000 in the city limits in one week.
1: That oh, yeah. That, no, but... That's yeah, that, fast. I mean...
0: And that, you know, people in their 30s are ending up on, you know, respirators. So sure I'm not uh, all I'm saying is my my economic fear came first and now my medical fear has caught up with it and so now I'm equally afraid of both things which is awesome yeah um
1: oh that's that's a good place to be (laughs) 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 no I I I mean I I understand I mean it, it I understand the the necessity of the quarantine like I totally am on board with that but if the quarantine is necessary, so is very urgent and immediate massive economic aid, right? Yeah. You can't have the quarantine be sustainable and effective if you don't have the economic piece. Like it's it's just going to be impossible. So if I want the quarantine to work and I would like it to work, then the other piece just has to happen. Or, you know, I don't know. I don't know what happens you know, the shaming of the people that were pointing to the costs of the quarantine, you know, as it's imposed and sort of resentful of the quarantine, I thought was really hard for me to take, given um, the already, like, I have a huge amount of generational angst sort of brewing, because the virus, as you said, is attacking people our age, it's attacking younger people. My, my younger sister, who I adore, is in a very precarious situation because of pre-existing conditions. I'm worried about my partner uh, who has high blood pressure. Um, so, you know, I'm not saying the virus uh, doesn't attack younger people, but the primary target of the most deadly version of the virus appear so far to be people in their 60s and above. It, it is, you know, the sure. death rates are just obscene for that generation and you know i have to say (laughs) and this you know this is really hard but i am so angry at that generation when i look at the voting patterns when i think about climate change when i think about how they have impeded efforts to extend healthcare access um to my children's generation and when they seem kind of willfully ignorant of the precarity they've produced in the economy with their decisions, Um, you know, and then my children are being asked to sacrifice their economic future to to help save them. (laughs) I was so angry. Now, don't get me wrong. I would do it because, you know, I I would set up this quarantine because I do have a lot of individual loved ones that i want to protect out there you know from the transmission of this disease um but if i'm forced to make difficult choices between my children and um and my elders uh my children come first and of course they do bottom line for everyone And, and yeah, your your elders your elders would even true. insist but, but,
0: that you make that choice, I think. No, I mean...
1: that's not true. That's not true. Because it is my elders who are very actively robbing my children of their future. I am so angry when I look at the generational divide in politics. I don't think my elders put my children first. I think that they have very actively continued to undermine the environment my children's access to health care which already was even though i have a middle class salary when my daughter gets a fever she goes in the f- bathtub use my language to cool off before i call the doctor because i have a seven thousand dollar deductible so even before this was happening it wasn't like we could go to the doctor just because we felt bad and it is the elder generation that is primarily responsible and denying the economic changes that they set into motion that have caused the vulnerability to this crisis. So I am, no, my elders have not put my kids first. So my son is struggling, you know, he's, he's 16. And, um, he was already kind of hanging on by a thread when, when this all started with high school and, you know, he's an angsty kid just like I was an angsty kid at that age. Um, and the first day I tried to homeschool him on on Monday morning, um, you know, I went, I, I started trying to get him to work and then I went off to the store to drop off a, um, some food for the food pantry locally just to do a drop-off. And I came back and he had um, rejected my husband's attempts to get him to continue working, and they had had a scuffle because my son decided he was leaving the house. Uh, and my husband tried to stop him, and they had had a physical altercation then. And my son had left, um, you know, shouting all sorts of very emotional things about how he never wanted to see any of us again. Um, and my husband was left kind of mildly battered from it <laughs> when I showed up. And then I spent that morning, the first morning of our kind of official quarantine, driving around um, to bridges, um, hoping my son wasn't going to be a jumper, because I didn't know what he would do. I mean, he, he'd left the house um, not dressed to be outside, and he hadn't made contact with any of his friends, parents or friends. Um, I went to the police station Um you know, to find out how long I had to wait to make a report. Unfortunately, he came home after a couple hours. Uh, but it's just that, that the situation we're in isn't normal. It's really difficult for him to grapple with. Um, and I think it causes him a great deal of anxiety, and that turns to anger. And he gets angry at me because I'm his mom. So, and he, he rebels against authority, which is what teenagers are supposed to do.
0: In a house in quarantine, there's literally no one else to rebel against.
1: Yeah, yeah, where are you, you going to go? He's having a really hard time uh, with the social isolation. Like he really, My son has a very tight, small group of friends, and they cling to one another uh, like a life raft. And the fact that that support system is now online only um, is a major, um, you know, that's, that's a major blow. And so anytime I try to take away the devices that allow him this sort of constant communication with his friends so that he can then concentrate on schoolwork, that for us becomes the explosive, the potentially explosive moment where emotions run really high. Um, at one point I noticed when he was trying to do his schoolwork later in the week, we had managed to talk him into it. Um, He had it set up so that Snapchat would be constantly blinking in the background with messages whenever his friends were communicating, which was always. And I made some kind of a comment, well, no wonder you can't concentrate. (laughs) You know, you've got this thing blinking on your screen. And he became really upset with me and said, don't make fun of my friends and, you know, um, and I was like laughing about it because it was just so obvious to me that this had to be shut off if he was going to accomplish anything um, intellectual effectively. Uh, but emotionally, that represented something else to him that right now I don't think I can shut off. Even if it means that he doesn't get his homeschooling done and he doesn't pass this grade and he doesn't get, you know, like, like whatever that, little blinking light is doing with all those messages. It's doing something that has to be done for him. Um,
0: What's the lifeline? It's the last connection to his normalcy. Um, I understand that.
1: And routine's important for him and that social connection is is just really important for him. You know, this might be the end of his his high school. I I don't know if he's going to be able to go back. Um, he's certainly not getting. I mean, we can't homeschool him. Um, so I don't know what happens next for him. This might be. This might be it.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's only so much you can do, I, I guess. The um, the academic necessity is interesting. I, I hadn't. I mean, my son's in first grade, right? So mm-hmm. we're not feeling. Particularly, um, we don't feel like there's particular urgency for him to complete all of the work that they're sending over on Google Classroom every day. Yeah, because he's not—he's not, he's not going to fail out of first grade over this. They're not going to do that. But not graduating high school—that's—that's that's heavy. I mean,
1: yeah. If my son had been an A student going into this, I probably wouldn't be worried. You know, <laughs> I, I would be okay. But just the very week before the quarantine, I was in a parent-teacher conference where they were telling me that he was at risk of failing his classes because he doesn't do his work. You know, they all rave about how intelligent he is. He's a really bright kid, but we can't get him to do schoolwork at home. And we've never been able to really do it. And so he was already, he was only possibly going to pass because he had study hall periods in school where he had kind of directed structured time at school to do it. Um, and without school to structure him, it's, you know, I can't make up for that. There's just no way because he already wants to challenge my authority and we already have a different kind of emotional um, emotional thing happening uh between us as his parents and he was so close to failing his classes uh, and already failing some of them that it's not like the, the i don't imagine the teachers are going to give him the benefit of the doubt you know <laughs> um I, I just don't i don't know like maybe we'll get really lucky and all the teachers will hand out passing grades because they'll just recognize how exceptional this. Particular moment in history is that's my hope, um, but if they don't, I, do, I don't see how how he would pass his class. So that thin thread that he was hanging on to to kind of keep his life in order has been cut by this. I was just so angry. That was just the dominant emotion. Maybe that's just me. That's how I react. I get angry, not sad. But I was so angry <laughs> that. Um, that all of this was happening in that larger kind of context, that larger political context, where I felt like um, here we're trying to save the very people who have stood in the way of making a humane economy where we would have access to health care and we'd have the very kinds of institutions that would prevent a crisis like this. Um, and now my son's going to be in a more precarious situation if he can't finish high school. Um, so for me, it was very much like, as a mom, I was having a very difficult time grappling with what I recognize are going to be the long-term costs of, of, of this as it unfolds.
0: This is The Big Shut-In. My name is David Hoffman, and this is a production of Race Car Radio. If you have any feedback for me or have a story that you would like to share, You can write me an email at thebigshutin at racecarradio.com.